Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome, dress listeners, to part two of our two-part fascinating conversation with Dr. Reem Almatwali about her incredible book, Sultani Traditions Renewed, which discusses the evolution and women's sartorial and textile practices in the United Arab Emirates from 1966 to 2004. As we learned on Tuesday's episode, this was a period of vast economic, social, political, and for our intents and purposes, sartorial change. And today, Dr. Reem is going to introduce us to some of the individuals who are part of this period of transformation. One, a royal tailor. The other, a textile purveyor, providing us with wonderful insights into their crafts and everyday experiences. And our listeners may also remember that this is a period during which Dr. Reem herself was deeply immersed because she was a child growing up during this period. So we're super thrilled to learn a little bit more about that later because she was actually a fashion designer herself. Let's learn more about that now. Just to give our listeners an idea about how the textile trade was transformed um, in the latter half of the 20th century, you write about, I think, in 1975, there's a population of 212,139 textile shops. And fast forward 20 years to 1998, 3,658 textile shops. So incredible amount of growth. And you actually write about how the first specialized textile shop opened in your home city of Abu Dhabi in 1969. And this is a place that you yourself frequented. Can you share with us what you remember from your early experiences there? Yes, I think uh, maybe I should tell the story, which is wonderful and interesting. At the time when I was growing up, as you mentioned, there were only a handful of uh, textile stores and no, actually not textile, but general stores, what you would call general stores, sort of like the West in America. When they, the pioneers came to the Western frontiers of America, you would have a general store that would contain, would sell everything from food to textiles to whatever a person needed in that community. I would say if we want to mark a pivotal point, it was one of the trips that, the first trips that Shehzayed, again, the same man, took to Europe, official trips that took place to Europe, and he was visiting Switzerland, Italy, and France. And he requested that a number to to include in his entourage one of the most well-known today fabric merchants by the name of Abdullah Khunji and other merchants as well. At the time, Abdullah had a store that was a general store within the old market, like others, a handful of others like him. And when he went with his highness to Europe, this is a story that he told me, and it is listed, uh, written in the book as well. He was exposed or he was introduced to all these factories, beautiful textile fabric factories, whether it is in Switzerland or Italy or France. And Shehzayed recommended to him. And that was, again, one of Shehzayed's nature. He was always constantly trying to find means for his people 
to be advantaged by. So if you are a merchant, he would encourage you to start a certain business. If you had a knack for education, he would push you to go into education. If you were a business person, he would push you to go into that and so on and so forth. He was truly a father to his people and encouraged them to excel in whatever they were good at. And he had a keen eye for that. So he suggested to Abdullah Khunji at the time, why don't you start importing these fabrics? And he signed, Abdullah says, he signed the first agency agreement at the time. It was early 70s. And he started importing fabric. And therefore, he went back home in order to create a new store that is just specialized in fabric. And he supported it with Another store that is for tailoring, because you needed to make sure that these fabrics, when bought, they are tailored and made into something. So he started that. And today, Abdullah Khunji has over 30, 35 stores all over the UAE, as well as tailoring uh, shops that support these fabric stores. He has the leading Swiss, French and Italian fabrics all around. He was all over the markets in every emirate or state uh, of the seven states. And eventually, when the mall came into the world and we started to have the tradition of malls in the UAE, many of these malls started opening uh, stores for fabrics in them. And again, Abdullah Khunji did not abandon his old stores in the market. He kept them and he opened new ones in the malls to follow the trend that is taking place. So in a short story, you can see how fabric and the the textile market and industry managed to evolve in this period of time. Yeah, and just as the newly acquired wealth transformed the textile trade in the UAE in the post-oil boom, you also write about how the tailoring trade expanded exponentially, which you have talked a little bit about. But I would actually love if you could introduce us to what you call the tailoring profession, because that's something we might call dressmaking in the Euro-American context. So what did this look like pre and post-oil? Pre-oil, people didn't buy from the market. Everybody had their dresses or clothing made for them. As I said, it would be the mother or an aunt or somebody who is talented or has a knack for tailoring. And I think the Singer sewing machine has had a great impact and a footprint on sewing in general in the whole region. And most of the people here and the most of the Arab region, they remember that their grandmother would have one of these. In some Arab countries, they were part of the dowry. The brides were given this machine in order for her to be able to make dresses, clothing for her family. Or if she was in need, it will be a source of income for her to generate. And then eventually, with time, as I said, when more tailors started coming in, again, this tradition continued. People always favored making their own clothing for them. They did not favor purchasing brands or buying ready-made. The tradition of dressmaking was very much embedded in their daily psyche, and they wanted dresses to be made specially for them. As I said, they could be reproductions and copies of the other person's clothing, but it was made for them in the local market. Eventually, as we opened up to the world, the Arab world became their source, and many designers, especially from Lebanon, became involved in making most of the dress wear, be it 
in traditional style or European style for the clientele that they managed to acquire within the UAE as well as the rest of the Arab world. And they continue to do so. Names as big as Eli Saab has his own clients here who order dresses from him on a seasonal basis and for special occasions. And they continue to carry on in this manner until today. And then eventually with the introduction of the mall and the internet and brands coming into the country, we started having the ready-made, we started having the pret-a-porter and we started having net-a-porter and others like matches and fetchers and all of that that we have now. And people order their clothes and less and less people are requiring to have their clothing tailored. As you said, mainly now it is daily wear, which is the kandora, the tunic that is worn at home every day and in casual appearances that is made to order through these tailoring shops. Their numbers are decreasing, sadly, and also it could be special dresses made for your dowry. So they order them as well through these tailors. But the younger generation, my daughter's generation and younger, they are more opting for purchasing their clothing the way any international (laughs) client would purchase. And they are using ready-made items rather than this. So you're talking about this kind of transition from custom-made to -to ready-to-wear. And of course, there's still custom-made still exists as a tradition to this very day in the version of haute couture or not. But can you talk a little bit about how women worked with their dressmaker to commission custom designs? Would they, for instance, go and get the textiles from a different purveyor and bring the textiles to the tailor to make their garments? I think you also write about how the measurement system is super interesting, and how the tailors wouldn't actually measure the women, but would base things on different garments. Like you said, they brought in the same, for instance. Can you just give us a little bit more insight into that process? Because I think it's fascinating. Yes, it is actually. And and you are reminding me, you're taking me back to that time, actually, as you speak. And uh, as I said, most women love fabrics in our area of the world. They can tell you if a woman walks in by just looking at her, if this is silk and what kind of silk it is and where it comes from. They can, without formal education, they are capable to touch a fabric and be able to tell you the whole story of that fabric and where it came from. And some of them even will tell you the year from which this fabric came. Because And, and they wouldn't say it in our way, and that is, 1920s or 1950s. No, it is the year when when they flew to the moon or the year when Nixon came to power or the year when a special phenomena that has happened, they would relate that year to it and be able to tell you about that. And they admired it. And in earlier days, you would have trunks full of fabrics. And actually, interestingly now, with the Zay initiative, when I look for items that are old, oddly enough, because of this tradition of trunks and holding, keeping fabrics, purchasing numbers of fabrics and keeping them, putting them aside to be used when needed, that we can find some pieces that come, I managed to find pieces that date back to the 1950s and 40s. It is through this a tradition that allowed me to be able to locate that kind of material because when they purchased generally they purchased in quantities so they would either buy a bolt of the fabric because remember in our societies 
families tend to be very large. So a woman can have anything between six to 14 kids. So uh, she would have, let's say, four daughters or nine daughters or whatever. And these will, you can you don't buy fabric to cover one child. You cover all of them to, you know, to be used by everyone. So it is much uh, more practical to purchase a bolt. And not only that, you would have many sisters because again, you come from a big family. So when you buy, you don't buy just for yourself. You buy for your daughters, you buy for your sisters, you buy for your mother, you buy for your mother's sisters, the aunts and so on and so forth. So people tend to buy in bulk and they share among them and they keep. With time and with wealth, the trunks changed into storage rooms. And I, my first degree is interior design. And I, I have worked on so many homes and palaces and so on and so forth. And with time, we started introducing storage rooms that were just fitted for fabrics with shelves to hold fabrics. And you can walk in and it is like walking into a fabric store and you can pick whichever fabric you want in order to create whatever you needed from dresses. And when you have this much fabric and when you are purchasing fabric in bulk, because the country, as I said, opened up to the whole world and you have competing merchants bringing in fabrics from West and East and North and South. And you have examples and styles that are unbelievably beautiful and you can afford them. So you'd end up purchasing and having quite a lot. So what happened is when you have that, you would decide on the tailor or the person who's going to make these pieces for you. So, and again, we are talking about a society that has wealth now, not to the earlier one that was destitute. When you have that, you have the option of either having your own personal tailor at home who can make the necessary items for you and your family, which works much better because it's more cost effective if you have so many children, or you would send some out to the tailors around. I remember a time when suitcases of fabric would be sent to different tailors with one sample or two samples, as I said, and they would say same. So this one would do, he's very good in doing this kind of embroidery. So they would send him a whole suitcase. And because these tailors never met the women that wore these dresses, remember most of the tailors at the beginning were men and they did not mix with the women, their clientele. So what used to happen is the tailor would receive a suitcase in it, the fabrics, maybe about 50 pieces of fabric in a suitcase. And then with it, one sample of a tunic dress. And the tailor would use his own decision or style into it. So they would borrow from the decorative print that is on the fabric to create the embroidery. They would borrow from the style and the shape of the sample piece that was sent to them to create it. What assisted them is the fact that most of these articles of clothing have a general basic shape. So they are not really haute couture. They are not draped style of uh, clothing that will require a body and require a pattern. It's a fairly straightforward mechanism of creating or cutting and shaping the garment. And uh, with time, and as I said, when they were introduced to the more regional dressmakers who could create European style of clothing for them, these women started coming from Lebanon, started representatives of designers. Even today, very famous designers 
haute couturiers that create gowns for many of the women in our area of the world, they don't really meet the ladies. Their representative, a female counterpart in that works for them would come in and sit down and take the notes and so on and so forth. So we go back to the measuring format and the reason why they used to measure, if you look at the style of clothing in the past, again, as I said, it was functional. It was based on really, really functional, very quite clever ways. I mean, the, the women created the body of the dress out of the, the size of their loom. Because of the loom being something that is small, that can be carried with them wherever they go, they had specific size for or width for the fabric. And usually it coincided with the size of the shoulders generally. And therefore it created the center part or the bodice of the tunic. And then you would create, take another panel to create the sleeves and attach them to a garment and so on and so forth. And then when they measured, they used to measure using their hand, their fingers, and even the units of measurement are based on the fingers and the shape, you know, the size of your palm, the size of the four fingers together, then the distance between your index finger and your elbow, and then the distance between your index finger and your shoulder. These were the units of measurement. And when they measured us, there were no measuring tapes. I remember as a child, I would stand up and like others that are of my age, and the lady who does the tailoring at home would come and she would measure us by hand. And she would say, okay, you are five. And with her palm opening, with her palms wide open, she would take measurements from my shoulder down to my ankles. And then she would note in her mind, she would not, she does not read and write. Wow. Generally, women did not read and write. And uh, she would keep it in memory, in her memory. Let's say I am four fingers taller than my sister. And my other sister is, let's say, three fingers uh, thinner than I am and so on and so forth. So she relates or I myself and another cousin are of the same size or myself and my mother are of the uh, varying sizes. And she keeps all these uh, variations within her brain and, and in her memory. And she knows how to create them. And she uses an old pattern. So she takes my old dress, folds it in the right way to cut the fabric, to use it as a pattern to cut the new fabric and restitch it and create the outfit from it. So again, I have to stress that these were very simple shapes, simple formats, and they, they lent themselves to this. They lent themselves to this kind of the ability to do all of this type of tailoring. And it's usually hand by hand. As I said, some of them used the machine to stitch. When uh, the industry opened up, tailors came from abroad and started creating them and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it's, it's simple shapes, but as you also emphasize throughout the book, and you have these wonderful detailed images that show us all the incredible detail of these garments close up, the amount of embroidery and embellishment and then the, the beauty of the textiles are really what those basic shapes provide a canvas for this art and expression, which is so beautiful. In the book, we meet so many wonderful individuals, all of whom it seems you share a personal relationship with, which is just wonderful. And this includes the royal dressmaker Fatima bin Saad, who at the time of the book's publication, what you write was only one of a handful of women remaining who are experts in making the traditional dress of UAE women. And I believe you are 
at one time one of her clients. So I was hoping you could introduce us to Fatima's role in the royal family and maybe what would a typical experience have been like with her and her team? Actually, when I was describing to you how I was measured, it was Fatma Saad who measured oh. me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fatma Saad is a wonderful story. Sadly, Fatma Saad has passed away about 10 years now. And she was an amazing woman, uh, never had formal schooling, did not know how to read or write. And yet she was very larger than life character. She grew up in the ruling family's home household. Again, in that time, you had in the Sheikh's family, you had many children who were raised as part of the children of the palace itself. They come to it because either maybe their parents were sick and, and they had couldn't take care of them. Maybe they were brought in with another family and so on and so forth. So they had many children that were raised as part and parcel of the ruler or the, the merchant or the affluent family's household. And Fatima was one of these people, a young woman, and she showed talent in dressmaking and interest in dressmaking from an early age. I think uh, if I remember correctly, maybe she was 13 when she started stitching and so on and so forth. And the, the, the family, the ruling family, uh, it was the brother of Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al-Nahyan, who used to rule Abu Dhabi, the, the emirate of Abu Dhabi, prior to Sheikh Zayed taking uh, power. So it, we are talking now the 50s, early 50s. And she lived in the old fort, which is now one of the main landmarks of Abu Dhabi, the capital. Uh, she grew up there and she made dresses for the family as a whole. With the change in lifestyle and the formation of the UAE and the palace household increased and she tended to uh, move, uh, stay with the family, but she married and she had her own children and her own family. And she and her children grew to hold very high positions in ministerial positions within the government and within the educational and, and commercial realm in the UAE. She was very clever at the same time, and she wanted to grow. She had interest in growing her talent. And she was one of the first people to start an atelier, if you want to call it. Actually, it was a number of tailors and cutters and embroiderers. And they worked under her and in order to fulfill the requirements of a growing household within the family. And by word of mouth, everybody wanted to be dressed by Fatima's work and they would send her, as I said, the suitcases would come to her uh, store. Workshop, actually, it wasn't a store. It didn't have a front, like a front uh, facing and people didn't walk in to make any orders. It was just a, like a workshop where all these talented men were working and producing for her. And she dictated the colors, the combination of colors, the, and, and because she traveled with the ruling family all over the world, she became exposed to different styles, different colors, different fabrics, different techniques. And she began to learn organically and by experience. Not only that, she also knew everyone. So she knew their tastes, their likes and dislikes. She knew the trends that are happening around. All of this compiled together, created or gave her privileges than, that others might not have. 
And in time, when I started studying, I remember when I started studying about this whole thing and writing my thesis, she would laugh at me and make jokes about me because I would sit down and write and interview her. Of course, I did not say I interviewed her because she thought she would have thought it's frivolous. Why would you interview me? Who am I for you to be interviewing me? Why would you want to write down what I'm saying? But as I wrote, and I would say to her, I'm going to write a book and your name is going to be in the book. She did not believe it. And she did not really understand or comprehend uh, the value of what was going on, because this was a, a, a style of life that she's not accustomed to or understood. And I'm very happy that one day while we were traveling to Hajj for the pilgrimage with the ruling family in Mecca, I managed to snap a, an image of Fatma. I took a photograph of Fatma and she allowed me to take it. And I managed to put it in the book. So this woman who would have gone through time and who ha would have gone through history without being noticed or without being known. Her story would never have been told or written. I managed to capture it and put it into the book and record what she has done. As simple and as basic as it is, she's there forever. And this is what sort of sparked or encouraged me or uh, inspired me to go on with the Zay Initiative. This is part and parcel of the Zay Initiative. It is recording the stories of these women that I come across and I meet, be it those who wore it or who made it or who bought it or who carried it from one generation to the other. Absolutely. And such a beautiful connection you've just made and something that is evident throughout the Zay collection. And I'm assuming then that you have a lot of her pieces in the Zay initiative collection. Most of the, most, most, not all, but most of those pieces that were acquired from the ruling family, different parts of the ruling family, different members of the ruling family, you could tell immediately by looking at it, which were the ones that were made by her and which were the ones that are not made by her. So you can, wow. it's very her work, yeah. And of course, it is not her who's making it. It was her, if we can call it atelier, her, her, her men. And by the way, but before she passed away, she had about 37 tailors, maybe around 27 embroiderers, maybe around 12 cutters and others. So, and she had two distinct workshops, one in Dubai, and the other in Al Ain, which is an oasis in the desert. So we meet so many wonderful creators throughout the book. And actually one of these creators is you because a woman of many talents, it should come as no surprise to our listeners that you were a fashion designer during this period that you study in your book. Uh, please tell us about your process and some of your design influences. We would also love to hear maybe about some of your clients. I studied interior design, as I just said a few minutes ago, and went on to do a master's in Islamic architecture. And after that, I did the PhD in Islamic art and archaeology. So my life was towards that realm of, and that field, let's say. But again, when I say organically, I truly mean organically. Everything at that time happened due to certain processes and circumstances that came across and one makes use of them. 
So when I was studying and uh, developing the information for the book, eventually that became a book, and for my thesis, I began to, I went back to learn how these articles of clothing were made. And hence, I was sitting there working under Fatma Saad and her making uh, jokes about me and the way I cut it and how I hold the uh, needle and thread and how I should be doing this or that. So I got tutored by her on how these things were made, cautiously tutored because she didn't understand my intentions. She probably thought that I wanted to compete with her in her uh, area of work. And I'm just joking. (laughs) So I started learning how to make these articles of clothing and how they were constructed and so on and so forth. And, and, And as I said to you, I grew up among this family, this ruling family with all its extended lineage. And uh, most of the young ladies who are my peer are my best friends and my childhood friends. And while we were, I was studying it and learning it about it, and I had this design capability within me, they began to ask me to create something that has the tradition that they are accustomed to, but is evolved and has something from the contemporary life that they are beginning to lead. And at that period of time, we were opening up to the world and many dignitaries and officials were beginning to start to visit the UAE and to come and meet with this family and meet with the various members of it. And they wanted to wear something that represented them, but at the same time was trendy, was on par with international dress formats and couture and so on and so forth. So I began to think about ways that I could implement those and combine those. And I started creating a collection. Actually, it was two collections a year only. And I must say, the, again, I go back uh, and I'm being very honest about it. It was Shazayed himself who was very much interested in making sure that these women would dress up in these dresses. So it was he who inspired everyone to work very hard in order to produce products that combine tradition with evolution. You're talking about the president, right? Just to remind listeners. Yes, I'm talking about the father of the nation, who was then the president. He has passed away uh, since 2004. And uh, what happened was I started creating these, and I, I would do two exhibits or two shows. Actually, they were not really even shows, because I would create a certain number. Again, you have to remember, we're talking about a very small country, a limited number of people. So my clientele... First of all, they knew each other. They were related to each other. They dressed in front of each other. So not one piece can be equal or the same as the other one because they would all attend the same events. They would all be together at the same time wearing these pieces. And therefore, we had to create unique pieces. And I used to create around 400 a year. Oh, wow. And each one was a different design. And if I was a designer abroad, I never called myself a designer because I didn't think of myself as a designer. But if I was a designer, each design would have created a whole line of production with it. But with me, it was just one design for one person used only once. And we, we, it was produced on a yearly basis. And when His Highness, the father of the nation, passed away, To me, the dress exemplified him. To me, the dress was him. And when he passed away, I vowed not to make any more. And I stopped. 
dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives. But what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can. By joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Your book ends in 2004, and I'm hoping you can tell us about this decision to end the book in 2004, which you've just alluded to, and perhaps provide some insights into the role that traditional dress continues to play in the UAE society today. So the book, as you said, focused on a period of life that I consider personally to be the golden age of the UAE. It was the period of the lifestyle, a time of the founding father of the United Arab Emirates. And most of us who grew up in that period of time had certain privileges and experiences that I think are very special to us and very important in forming our personality and our being. When it comes to public dress, today the abaya has become the symbol of identity and the continuation of costume. Today you have a genuine country that has been established completely different in type and lifestyle to the one that existed before the oil, where you have people coming in from all over the world and you also have globalization 
be it technological advancements or other influences. So dress became, became associated to different aspects and different connotation, where the abaya now denotes that they are abiding by their culture, custom, and asserting and highlighting their identity. Dr. Reem, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and for sharing all this incredible history, but also these very personal stories. You've given us so many incredible insights into the dress traditions that continue to this very day in the UAE. It is such a gift. I, of course, cannot let you go without asking you to please tell us about what is currently happening with the Zay Initiative. You have so many exciting projects going on, including an upcoming symposium on Arab fashion. Thank you so much. I hope I captured your audience's attention and I hope I entertained them and I hope I didn't speak too much and I hope you would you have enjoyed this session with me. Through the Zay Initiative, which is a nonprofit organization that digitally archives the Zay collection, we have a number of other events and platforms that connect us with everyone, such as the one today, your podcast, that we are having our discussion through today. We are delighted to announce that our online forthcoming Arab Costume Collections Sustaining Legacy Symposium, the past, present, and future, will be taking place on Sunday, the 14th of November, from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. GMT. We are going to have two online panel sessions, the first focusing on the importance of Arab dress and culture with key collectors from around the globe, and the second on the role and relevance of heritage to contemporary brand. Again, it is our way of continuing the tradition, connecting it with commerce and consumers and designers and educators and academics, and ensuring that it can find its way to the future and be sustained. We look to run a series of these events in the coming months, for anyone who is interested, please go to our website, www.zay.org, for more information. Our second mission is, or objective at the moment, is to bring forth the Zay Initiative by having the archive available publicly and presenting a useful tool and bridge between retail and academia, documenting the names and stories, giving women and men voice that transcend time, leads to a most exciting and meaningful endeavor. It also allows people who are tuning to us to open a window into the Arab world and to simultaneously reacquaint young Arabs who are in the diaspora or away from the Arab world and help them connect with their roots. Well, Dr. Reem, again, thank you so much. Uh, dress listeners, we will, of course, direct you and post the links to all of these incredible upcoming events in our show notes. Dr. Reem, this was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cassidy, for hosting me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your support and I very much value your friendship. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Reem, for being so generous with your time and your knowledge. And I know our dress listeners will join us in heading over to the Zay, T-H-E-Z-A-Y.org, to browse the collection and also sign up for upcoming symposiums and check out upcoming guests for their ongoing webinar series on the art of Arab fashion. And you can find these links in our show notes as well as links to Dr. Reem's personal webpage where you can find more information on her incredible Sultani book, 
Be sure and also check out our season three episode with Dr. Reem if you have not already. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you contemplate the beauty and the art of the diversity of fashions from across the Arab world next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Also, if you have a moment and you want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.